This is a No Land in Sight podcast production. Welcome to Is That Movie Still Good? Our new podcast where we take a movie that we think is good and give it a thorough rewatching to determine is that movie still good? Hi, I'm Jim Nolan, and with my partner Nate Grushon, we're going to metaphorically open the refrigerator, pull out that plastic container at the back, take open the lid, give it a good sniff, and determine is that movie still good? Today, Season 1, Episode 1, the movie that started this whole project, 1991's Cape Fear. So let's get to it. Let's determine, is that movie still good? All right, let's do this. Welcome to Is That Movie Still Good? I'm Jim Noland, and... I'm Nate Grushon. Nate Grushon is here. Here we go. Yes. Um, Going to start out with Cape Fear today, a movie that uh, we both love, think we love, and... Uh, Got to talking about this project and decided we'd start a podcast, thinking about old movies and movies that we love. Um, so let's just get right into it. To start with, uh, Nate, what was your initial reaction to Cape Fear when you saw it in 1991? Well, you know, 1991's the year I graduated high school, so, you know, big important year for me. Uh, big into De Niro and Scorsese, so I had a really good cast that I enjoyed watching. What I remember the most... Um, our specific scenes. So the iconic scene of him climbing out from under the car when they finally do get to Cape Fear near, near the end of the movie, the opening scene when he's leaving jail, um, some of the dramatic scenes between Nick Nolte and his wife, and uh, just kind of overall, you know, good thriller. Just a, a good thriller that I that I that I think you know a lot of people remember and not a lot of people didn't like. Yeah, and I thought the same thing. I remember watching it. I have only saw it two or three times back then. I was a freshman in college when it came out, I think. And I thought it was a good thriller. I thought it was interesting, good. Uh, but what got me onto this was I thought, man, that movie is awesome. And I haven't seen it in forever. And it's one of those movies that is awesome, but you never catch it on cable. It's not like you're flipping around and it's on TNT. Or... Well, because it would only be like 20 minutes long. <laughs> right, right, right. Or well, they could stretch it to four. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, know, you had to take everything out of it that you can't show on normal broadcast television. It wouldn't be that long of a movie, nor would it be a good movie. <laughs> right. No, it would be, no, right. We would hate it now if yeah. it were on cable all the yeah, time. Exactly. Uh, so when I got back into rewatching it, um, it held up remarkably. Fantastic movie. And I'll tell you, the first thing that jumped at me when I rewatched it was: there's no slow burn. We're just jumping right into it. And I think that with, you know, with some of these thrillers, you have some slow burn or you have some underlying plot contrivances to, to try to get you into the film. This is no junk, man. We're jumping right in there. Yep. De Niro's coming out of prison. I'm going to come meet you at the theater. We know, right? And I can't stand those long buildups for a rewatchable movie. It's why I can't rewatch uh, a Spider-Man origin story because I know he, how he gets bitten by the spider and I right. don't want to keep watching that. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, you know, and the, the interesting thing too, like like I said, I agree with it. That it just just jumps right in, but it doesn't pull any punches. You know, within ten minutes of that movie, that Max Cady wants to kill Sam. Yes, <laughs> or, or if, if not kill him, he wants to screw his life up pretty bad. Right, and 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 you and you're convinced immediately by the De Niro character Max Cady that. Yeah, he's probably going to be pretty successful at it. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, he, he looks like a pretty tough guy. You know, Scorsese, and, and I know this is a, a story from, you know, Scorsese didn't make this a, as an original movie. You know, the original movie came out back in 1962, but, um, and I honestly, I don't think I've ever seen it, but 
I, I can't imagine a better character choice or a better actor choice to play that role, especially in that time frame, um, to play just this kind of psychotic, you know, troubled person that, you know, raped a teenager, beats people up, um, God complex. I mean, you know, De Niro was in the prime of his career back then, just coming off of Goodfellas. Um, you know, him and Scorsese, I think this was maybe their seventh or eighth movie together. Uh, so obviously they had their bond. You know, a lot of good um, actor selection, I think. Really good cast in this movie. Yeah, let's get into that. I think that's something that we both want to talk about is the cast here and, and the actor and uh, the director situation. There are a ton of different ways that we can go with this. Um, do you want to start? Yeah, yeah. So I, what's really interesting about this movie, and, and people that know the 1962 version, uh, know it starred um, Gregory Peck, Robert Mitchum. Um, interestingly enough, the investigator in the original one was Tully Savalas. Yes, and uh, Scorsese wanted him in this, actually. Yeah. and uh, He might have been. He died. He, he was still alive. But I think he died in 94 or some type of cancer, so I don't know. Maybe he was already sick. But there were actually three people from the original movie that were in this. So Gregory Peck was in this one as well, mm-hmm. Robert Mitchum. And I don't really know this other guy, but I, a guy by the name of Martin Balsam. You familiar with him? No. I mean, he's, he's been on, on the waterfront, 12 Angry Men, Breakfast at Tiffany's. So probably, you know, a good character actor. Brief sidebar about character actors. This movie has my two favorite character actors of all time, Jodon Baker and Fred Thompson. Oh, yeah. You're never going to get Jodon Baker and Fred Thompson in the same movie. Come on. I mean, Jodon Baker's great. The guy was in Cool Hand Luke. Yeah. He was also he also was in Drew Dirt. <laughs> what kind of, what kind of <laughs> resume is that? <laughs> right, right, right. And Fletch. And Fletch. Yeah. Uh, he's been everywhere. Fred Thompson, the tons of movies. Yeah. He's, he's rock solid. Um, now here's something that's kind of interesting about this too. Edgar Allan Poe the Fourth has a role in this movie. Now I don't know who Edgar Allan Poe the Fourth is, other than the great grandson of the famous writer. But you know, I think that that's pretty interesting that he has a role. I think he's a prisoner or something like that. I gotcha. And there's actually three Scorsese's credited as extras in this movie too. Once again, I don't know if they're Marty's kids, his cousins, whatever. And you know, uh, he uses but, his mom a lot, right? His mom's in this one in a, in, a, in, a, in, in one scene. I can't okay, remember what it is, but his mom is in yeah. this one. Yeah. Okay. So. You know, and you think, I mean, obviously everybody knows De Niro and his pedigree and all that type of stuff. Um, but Nick Nolte at the time, I, mean, I think a lot of people, especially people that don't watch movies from back then or might be younger, they see Nick Nolte as this kind of old crazy guy. But, you know, right right after this movie, he filmed Prince of Tides, which got him a Golden Globe, got nominated for an Oscar. Right before this, he was in another 48 Hours, the sequel with Eddie Murphy. Uh, he's been in over 80 movies, and I think this was right in his, like, perfect uh, time in his career. Yeah, I think that's right. I would, you mentioned Prince of Tides, and, and uh, one of the things that I want to always want to talk about when we do this podcast is where does this movie kind of stack up with the, the historical movies of the time, with the Oscar movies. So I'm going to give you the Oscar movies from that year, okay. and you tell me if they're good or not. Okay? All right. All right. All right. The, the winner, of course, was Silence of the Lambs. Well, yeah, that, that's a great movie, great. right? And, All right. I, 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 and I would put that above this. I would, too. Me, yeah, too. Absolutely. I think that was a deserving. Beauty and the Beast. Which one? The Disney. Oh, anime. the cartoon. Yeah, the cartoon. cartoon. All right. Well, it's fine. Yeah. yeah whatever. It's... Uh, Bugsy? I like Bugsy. I liked it, too. It, yeah. it's, I, it's one that I haven't seen in forever. Maybe, maybe it's good. Maybe, maybe we'll put it on the list. Maybe. Well, we might have to check it out again. JFK. Great movie. I love Kevin Costner. Yeah. Great movie. Great movie. And Prince of Tides. Was that movie ever good? Did anybody see that movie? <laughs> I didn't see it. I couldn't tell you. No. I don't even know what it's about. Right, I don't either. Except, that, <laughs> except I remember the trailer being like from the, the most beloved book of our time, and, and you see, then I see Barbara Streisand and Nick Nolte, and I'm like, Man, I didn't think I'm going to skip this business. <laughs> yeah. But to your point, Nolte was in Prince of Tides. Nolte was actually nominated for Best Actor for Prince of Tides, 
he did these two great movies. He acted with Barbara Streisand. He acted with Jessica Lange. It had to have been the best year of Nick Nolte's life. Oh, right? absolutely. There's no absolutely. That, that, like he didn't know it, but that was as good as it was ever going to get. Was, that was the peak. The peak. That was the peak. That was the peak. <laughs> right. And we all have them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah right. <laughs> um, so, well, and then you have, you have Jessica Lange. Yeah, I, I, I guess I don't know what kind of movie she's been in because I, I mean, she's famous. I know who she is, but you know, she's. She's actually very well acclaimed. I mean, two Oscars, a Tony, three Emmys, five Golden Globes, and she was about forty-two years old when she made this yes, movie. Yes, yes. And I mean, you know, and and just she just does a great job playing Lee mm-hmm. Bowden, right, Bowden right. however they pronounce her name. If I had to give you one reason to watch this movie again, it's totally because of Juliette Lewis. She is the she is fantastic, and I I love everybody in this movie, and I love her part. And as I was watching this uh, again, I, I stopped for a minute and I was like. Was this her peak? I mean, she did some other great stuff. She did Natural Born Killers. She did California. She did some really good stuff. But was she ever better than this one? Well, I think that th- this is kind of the beginning of that kind of stretch. Yeah. Where she was that girl that, you know, she, she wasn't hot like a Sharon Stone or a Michelle Pfeiffer, some of the other iconic actresses from that time. But there's just something about her that still turned you on. You know, maybe how she'd bite her lip and smile and then she'd turn around and kick some dude's ass. Yeah, right, right, it's like right, there's right. something very, and, and you know, here's something interesting. We're very close in age. We're only like 20 yes. years apart. So it, it, it makes me think about what I was doing in 1990, which while she was filming, filming Cape Fear with Robert De Niro, I was, you know, going to bonfires and, you know, doing high school stuff. Right. So, you know, I feel real, success, uh, real successful and happy about that. Well, I thought about that, too, as I was watching this, because she is a year younger than me. So we're similar ages, and I remember watching the movie for the first time and having a big crush on Juliette Lewis. I was like, because yeah. we're the same age, essentially, and... Oh, see, I, I, I yeah. dig this girl, right? Well, then I watch it, you know, 25 years later, and, you know, she's this kid that's the age of my daughter now. <laughs> and uh, But her mom, Jessica Lange, who at the time was, uh, you know, just this middle-aged lady, yeah. now I'm watching it, and it's age-appropriate, and Jessica Lange's hot! And so I'm like, it's a super weird thing having a crush on two actresses in two different uh, time frames. In, in two different decades. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's pretty interesting. I, I, I think the, the, the cast and, you know, when you, and, and bringing in the people from the old movie, um, and, you know, there's, just, there's really not a, a hole in this cast at all. No. And, and quickly, back to, to Danielle's character, uh, Juliette Lewis's character. I, I was doing some research and looking at all of the different actresses who auditioned for this or who were interested in it. Um, Drew Barrymore auditioned, wanted it, and I think she had been drunk for three days or something, and she said it was one of the worst auditions of her life. Um, Christina Applegate auditioned for it. Reese Witherspoon was interested. Jennifer Connelly and Winona Ryder were in the running for this role. Nicole Kidman really wanted the role, but Scorsese wanted a younger actress. Sarah Jessica Parker. I mean, this thing could have gone in a ton of different directions, and I think the casting was perfect. Yeah, the only person there that I think could have pulled it off is Winona Ryder. Right. Because right, if you think right. about where she was at that same time, you know, I think she could have pulled it off. But I think what it did is it, it set the stage for this kind of iconic character, and I'm not specifically talking about Danny in this movie, but this char- character that Juliette Lewis was in the early and mid-90s between that and, you know, Mallory Knox and Natural Born Killers and that, that role in California. Um, and it was a character that... It, you know, it was interesting because she decided to get into music and start her own band. I know she still did some acting and th- stuff like that, but it was just kind of this like short-lived little window of this like incredible actress doing very similar roles, right. kind of similar type movies uh, that just you know you, you just don't see that very often. And there's really a lot of connections too um, between 
Kate Fear and Natural Born Killers. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, and silly things like, you know, I mentioned the scene earlier when De Niro gets out from under the car and he's got his hair pulled back in a ponytail. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't remember a lot of men wearing ponytails. Right, then, right. Like that. But if you think of Mickey Knox and Natural Born Killers, which was three years later by Oliver Stone in 1994, he had that look all the yes, time. Yes, yes. Um, you, you know, uh, Max Cady, so the De Niro character here in Cape Fear, you know, had this God complex. Mm-hmm. Well, that's Mickey Knox. Of course. Totally God right, complex. Right, right, right. And then a lot of the cinematography, you know, I think the cinematography in Cape Fear has really held up well. Uh, you know, a lot of the swimming patterns, swimming water patterns, uh, kind of the X-ray look, blacklight type stuff. And, you know, Oliver Stone did a lot of that and Natural mm-hmm. Killers, too. So I think there's a lot of similarities. So I, I, but I do have an interesting question for you okay. related to that comment. Yeah. If um, Max Cady and Mickey Knox were fighting over Juliette Lewis, who would win? <laughs> I feel real good about Max Cady. I feel real good about Max Cady. I, I think I would have to go with you there. I think I think Mickey's a little crazier, but yeah. Max Katie's kind of like a supernatural. Yeah, <laughs> you know he's I mean? superhuman, and he's he's methodical. He's he's got his eye on the prize, and he's going to do what he's got to do to take you down. Yeah, that, that, that would be an interesting movie. Somebody should make that. Yeah, so when so we get into the movie, and we talked about that initial scene. You know, you start off. You got De Niro. He's in jail. He's all buff and ripped. And I, I remember everybody talking. I, I specifically remember this back in 1991 when this movie came out. Everybody talking about how buff De Niro was, right? Because he had just came off of Goodfellas, mm-hmm. where he's kind of a little chubby, older gangster type guy, and he shows up in his next movie more shredded than he's been since Raging Bull. But that scene, you know, it, it, it was so iconic that Scorsese repeated it again. What 20 years later with DiCaprio and The Departed. Yeah, yeah. Scorsese, for all of his greatness, he does have uh, his his sort of crutches. Like he comes back to these certain things that he uses time again in, in his movies, and they're always great. Like how many times does he just give me shelter? Three? Oh, at least. Well, he's that's all the stones. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, but I mean, like he he does a lot of that kind of stuff. But yes, that you're just trading that ominous music for some dropkick Murphys. Uh, yeah. and and going going from there. Yeah, I thought another interesting connection here that I caught. On to really quickly as as KD started embedding himself more and more into the Bowden family in Cape Fear is this you know connection between the kind of older crazy guy and then the young teenage girl which of course takes me right back to Taxi Driver yes um, so there's I think there's a lot of where this movie intertwines with with other movies uh, you know whether it's you know other Scorsese stuff like The Departed uh, Taxi Driver you know there's a lot of these connections but I think it still carries its own weight. And keeps itself a you know as a very independent film in its own right. Right. So let's talk about scenes for a minute because okay. you've talked about a couple of scenes. Like uh, I want to go. There are two that I love, and I and you, I know that you're probably going to be with me on on these. But I want to start with the uh, you talked about the X-ray or the the negative sort of film mm-hmm. shot. Um, that that scene where fireworks are going off and. Nolte's brushing his teeth, and he and Lang then go have this sex, and it's just the the negatives, and you can see inside of her mouth and her teeth, and it, it's just that's an amazing shot in that movie, yeah. and and that whole scene. By the way, how long are those fireworks? Like, if we're gonna go anywhere for Fourth of July, it has to be there because the fireworks are going off while Nolte's brushing his teeth, and uh, Jessica says, hey, um, "It's only July 3rd. and oh, okay. Well, then they get in bed and they do it. And the fireworks are still going off, but she wakes up and goes to the vanity and puts on makeup while 
Nolte's sleeping, and the fireworks are still going off. And she looks out the window, and Katie's sitting on the wall, and the fireworks are still going off. And they walk outside to look for him, and the fireworks are still going off. Like, what is this, like, the, the two-hour fireworks session? Uh, yeah, no, those were long fireworks. And then, yeah, and then they have the thing at the parade the next day. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, where, where he, they're, they're standing across from each other, and he goes over, and conf- uh, Nolte's character, Sam, goes and confronts Max and, you know, physically assaults him. And, uh... Yeah, and that just kind of is just one of the many like encounters that kind of get these two going at each other mm-hmm. a little bit. But you know, you mentioned earlier how manipulative and how um, paced I think would be a good word uh, as how Katie approaches Sam as he's kind of messing with his life and digging in deeper and uh, you know trying to you know you you don't know if he's if he's trying to scare him. You don't really know what the real intent is. I mean, we know the lawyer story. We know that Sam withheld evidence in the trial as the defense attorney. Uh, that could have gotten Katie free. And, and Katie, when he went to jail, he was illiterate. But while he was in jail, he taught himself to read, taught himself philosophy, you know, began to defend himself at his own parole hearings. So, you know, this is a guy that, I think it was 14 years or something that he spent in jail just stewing about all this. Mm-hmm. And he asked Sam at one moment, he asked him, you know, or, or he said something along the lines of, you know, I'm going to show you what sorrow is. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then he told him to go look in the Bible between, um, what was it, uh, Esther and Song of Solomon or something like that. But, you know, he's talking about the book Job. Right. Um, And, you know, if you know the Job story, Job has everything taken away Mm -hmm. from him. And so I think this is kind of our first look, too, into Katie's developing God complex where Mm -hmm. he, you know, he he, kind of sees himself as a God. And if you remember the scene where... um, he gets brought in to jail, mm-hmm. and they show all of his tattoos. You know, his tattoos are just, you know, vengeance is mine. My Bible giant, versus giant cross. Yeah, giant cross that has, uh, uh, that's a scale. Scales of justice, yes. Scales of justice, where, you know, one side of the scale, um, you know, says justice and has a knife. The other one says truth and has a Bible. He's got, I put the trust in my Lord God. The Lord is avenger. And then the best tattoo, though, um, is a clown holding a smoking revolver in one hand and a Bible in the yeah, other. Yeah, 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 yeah. You, know, you know, Katie sees himself as the judge of good and bad in this mm-hmm. movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. I was talking about the absurdity of the fireworks, and I know you wanted to talk about the absurdity of the um, the theater scene. Yeah, the theater scene's ridiculous. I mean, it really it really takes the movie down a notch. Um, so so basically, you know, uh, Danny Juliet Lewis is sitting in her uh, room one night and gets a phone call. She's in summer school for something, and it's Katie. And of course, she doesn't know that. He pretends to be her theater teacher and says, "Well, tomorrow for class, meet me in the school theater, not in the classroom." So. Juliet Lewis, all innocent looking, walks into the theater and comes in from the top, and you see all the rows of seats going down. And the auditorium's dark, the stage is lit as expected, and on the set, on the stage, is a gingerbread house, mm-hmm. which of course brings in all these like you know fairy tale Hansel yes. and Gretel type things. And there's Katie sitting there, uh, right at the doorway, smoking this big fat cigar mm-hmm. that he smoked throughout the movie, wearing his goofy you know Charlie Sheen shirts and things like that. And uh, also, what what was his outfit like? What was the costuming like? And I think he did it all himself. And you know, like there's the scene where he rolls up in the convertible and he's talking. He's got the sunglasses and he's got the Angus Young hat on. And it, oh it, yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. What are those called? Like newsboy hats? Yeah, or something, something like, like that. that. Yeah, yeah, he's always got like a newsboy hat. And like I, I made the reference to Charlie Sheen, but you know, you know there's like bowling shirts. Yeah, like Charlie Sheen. <laughs> yeah, wearing, yeah. Like, on a uh, two and a half, two and a half, right? half yeah. yeah, it's like you know, I, I think uh, this was the precursor to that look, but. um... 
So he starts talking to her, and, and, you know, and at this time, she knows who he is. Mm-hmm. You know, and she knows he wants to either kill or hurt or whatever, her father and probably kill or hurt her. Yet, she starts talking to him. He pulls out a joint, lights his joint, takes a couple hits off of it, tells her it's okay, you know, whatever. Gives her a hit. She takes a hit off the joint from this lunatic. Next thing you know, he's all sweet-talking her, asks if he can hold her around the hip, then sticks her finger like on her lips to kind of quiet her lips, and she starts sucking his finger, and then they make out. No, that would not happen. That's so I, unrealistic. I, it is. It is totally unrealistic. And that's the scene that people love in this movie, or a lot of people love. And I think it's great because it was ad-libbed, from what I understand, mm-hmm. and it's... It's really intense, and if you break it down from a logical level, it's absurd. But I also think that we have seen in the movie part of what her character is is this uh, sort of free-spirited young woman child who's gotten in trouble at school for some pot, who's got a little bit of independence issues with her parents. And so may- maybe it's it's a little bit of like, well, maybe this guy's not so bad, and he's gonna he's charming to me, and it's... It, it, there's some romanticism to that. Maybe she likes the bad boy. In some I don't way. know. Maybe, but and I think that I think from that standpoint it plays in. But if, if you break it down and think that we've talked about this and and this guy's trying to kill us and, and uh, menace our family, um, it makes no sense. Well, I, and I and I thought it was funny too that you know we were talking about his wardrobe earlier. In this scene, he's actually wearing an Izod sweater. Yeah, like yeah, a yeah, yeah. Up Izod sweater. You know, to play that you know theater teacher. Again, he's methodical. He knows what he's doing. Yes. I'm going to be the the drama teacher. Yes, exactly. Like, what's more ridiculous, that theater scene or the first theater scene when they're watching the movie? Is it more ridiculous that they're all actually watching uh, Problem Child with John Ritter? Well, and that's funny, which is, which is great about that because it's a real kind of schizophrenic John Ritter character. Yeah, yeah. And, and, they, and, they, and they show that scene for a while from the movie. Yes. And it was kind of very, once and I know I'm making a lot of Natural Born Killer references, but it was very reminiscent of me to like how um, Stone and Natural Born Killers had the whole like the whole Rodney Dangerfield stuff was kind of set as a sitcom. Right, right, right. Just this kind of neurotic, crazy character. Um, it made me think of that, but it's funny because uh, a little fun detail on that, you know, once again, Katie's smoking his big fat cigar in the movie theater, but his lighter, do you remember what his lighter looked like? Um, was it the hula girl or what? what yeah, it was like a little hula, hula girl. bikini girl. Bikini girl, yeah. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Her, and her boobs were yeah, blinking. Yeah. yeah. I don't know where you get a lighter like that. But, yeah. <laughs> all right, so, and, and, so right after this theater scene, you know, I'm kind of at this point, like, all right, this movie kind of took a little bit of a nosedive. Let's see if it can recover itself a little bit. Sam, you know, Nick Nolte's character, he goes to his private detective friend who's been telling him, hey, you know, I can get, get a beat up for you. You know, pipes and chains, pipes and chains. And Sam says, you know, okay, I finally want to do it. And how much is it going to cost? And he tells him $1,000. And the look on Sam's face is like, crap, you know, that's a lot of money. Sam is a very successful attorney. $1,000 to beat somebody up, I think that's pretty cheap. Yeah, $1,000 cash under the table. I realize it's 1991, but still, you're you're a wealthy attorney. You can probably make something happen. Your wife is in... Art, ad design, right? You gotta have it. I just thought, it, yeah, I just thought that that was interesting. That that was, you know, it just to me didn't seem like a, a realistic uh, moment either. Just in the sense that, you know, what's a thousand dollars to get three people to beat somebody up? But then once again, we get kind of to like one of those like funny, not funny, haha, but kind of funny like really type scenes. So the guys go and beat him up. And, and Sam is like behind the dumpster watching. Yeah, Cause, yeah, yeah. Cause, you know, if I'm gonna pay a thousand dollars for three guys to beat somebody up, I, I, I want to see it. I mean, I'm spending all this money. I've got to see the results <laughs> I've of this. Got cash. to see this guy get beat up. Yes. 
And, of course, these guys lay into him with pipes and chains and, you know, beat him to a pulp. And then he pulls some rocky crap and, like, you know, gets up and, like, grabs a pole yeah, right. and, you know, beats them all up. And, you know, it's like he's indestructible. And here's something else that's interesting about that scene. Um, and we haven't really talked about this yet because this is something that you don't see in movies anymore. So that's the first time Nick Nolte's smoking a cigarette in the movie. And if you remember Lee, you know, yes. his wife smoked, chain smoked the whole movie. Non-stop, non-stop. I mean, it's one of the things I love about the movie, actually, is the just the blatant smoking that you just can't see anymore yeah. in, in cinema. And, and as the movie moves on, Nick Nolte apparently has started smoking again, and this was the first one that he smoked when he was watching De Niro get beat up. And later in the movie, Jessica Lange tells him, you know, you got to quit bumming cigarettes off me because I'm running yeah, out too yeah, fast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I find it fascinating because when's the last time you saw a movie where smoking was the plot line? Right. <laughs> it's not, it doesn't happen anymore. <laughs> right. So, you know, hey, things have changed. Things, things have changed. <laughs> I, quickly back to the $1,000 to beat this guy up. Like, how long had the character that Joe Don Baker plays been waiting for this client? How long has <laughs> a private eye been waiting for this guy who's like, Oh, you got somebody ready to take you down, menacing your family. I got this. Oh, you may have to beat him up. I've been waiting my whole life for this. Is, is, is there is there a profession uh, out there that has not been more over glamorized by cinema than the private investigator? Oh, absolutely. You know, here's the interesting thing about that: is the guy that wrote the original book that the original movie was based on. Um, you know, we mentioned earlier the original movie was in 1962. It was based off a book called The Executioners which was published in 1957 by an author named John D. MacDonald, uh, born in 16, died in 1986. Here's something interesting about the original movie. Hitchcock did the original storyboards when Hitchcock was going to do the movie, but for whatever yes. reason ended up backing out of it. Uh, the movie uh, was directed by a guy named J. Lee Thompson, who right before Cape Fear directed Guns of, the Na- Guns of Navarone, which I've actually seen that movie. Yeah, that's a good one. Very good one. Here's a fascinating little fun fact. Guns of Navarone starred Anthony Quinn and Gregory Peck. So back-to-back movies that J. Lee Thompson directed starred Gregory Peck. Fun fact, when Scorsese did Cape Fear in 1991 with De Niro, the last movie he did was Goodfellas. So both directors worked with the same actor... In consecutive movies. In consecutive movies. Yeah. So yeah. I think that's an interesting coincidence. That is an interesting coincidence. But you were talking about The Private Eye... Um, McDonald's claim to fame, so the guy that wrote The Executioner, is he was a detective writer. Before my time, I'm not a big detective reader. I'm sure some people have heard of him, but I never had. But his, his main character was this guy named Travis McGee, who's a self-described salvage consultant who recovers other people's property for a 50% fee. He wrote 21 books about this Travis McGee guy uh, from 64 to 85, and he wrote 43 books outside of that series. So he, this guy wrote 64 books. I mean, a prolific writer. And there's actually been a few other movies based on McDonald books. Um, there was one in 1970 with Jane Russell in it called Darker Than Amber. It also had Rod Taylor. And you, you, you wouldn't recognize Rod Taylor's name, but he had the lead role in The Birds from Hitchcock. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and, and he's um, and his last movie was Inglorious Bastards. But another Travis McGee movie, so they're, they're still trying to resurrect this character. So it must be a really fascinating character. I think we'll see him again because they made an attempt back in 2015 to do a, a, a movie called The Deep Blue Goodbye, mm-hmm. which was a Travis McGee book. And it originally was going to start DiCaprio. DiCaprio backed out for whatever reason, I'm not sure. Then Christian Bale came in, and it was also going to have Peter Dinklage in it. Uh, but then Bale hurt his knee and filming or something like that and production got cut and next thing you know he's having to move on to because he had already signed the contract with the big short. 
the, the interesting thing is the one that one of the smaller characters in Cape Fear, the PI, the the writer, the originator of the story, knew those people back. Those were yeah, my boys. Yeah, those were my boys. <laughs> okay, so let's 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 go back to um, De Niro because this is a great one, and uh, let's look at who was nominated for Best Actor that year. Okay, um, Anthony Hopkins won for Silence of the Lambs, and that's a really interesting one too because by the amount of time he spent on screen, should have been a supporting actor nominee. But in that, that Oscar politics, he was pushed as best actor, won it, and it really jump-started the back end of his career. So we, we love that. I would agree uh, with that. Yeah. And, and, you know, something interesting about that, too, is like, I'm pretty sure that um, uh, Hannibal Lecter is, like, the number one villain of all time. It was a good year for vi- villains, uh, uh, or at least anti-heroes, because Warren Beatty was nominated for Bugsy. Yep. Um, De Niro... Um, Robin Williams for The Fisher King. Oh, great movie. And Nick Nolte for Prince of Tides. Yeah, great. Fisher King's a great movie. I, I know you love De Niro. You love Scorsese. Uh, where does this performance rank, this role rank, in the career of De Niro? And I don't think anybody's going to say it's his best, but it might be his most underrated, the, the best one that people don't remember, even though his character is one of the top villains of all time. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I... I Personally, nothing's ever going to be Godfather Two. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that. I mean, you're you're the most iconic. You're playing the most iconic character of all time. Mm-hmm. I think in, in cinema. Um, you know, Raging Bull is great. His his his, his Goodfellas and Casino, which were essentially the same role. Uh, you know, those were great. The thing with De Niro, though, is in the last ten to fifteen years, he's kind of sidetracked more into different types of movies. Right, you know, the, right. the, the, the whatever the one with uh, the the, the, the Fockers, the Fockers, stuff, yeah, ben yeah. Stiller type stuff, and right. trying to do some more comedies. Now, him and Scorsese are actually working on another movie right now that has mm-hmm. Al Pacino in it. Got oh Ray, yeah, I saw it's that. Got Ray Romano in it. Yeah, um, and, and you know, uh, Pacino actually plays, I believe, Jimmy Hoffa. So mm-hmm. it, it, it's just kind of go back back to some of the more traditional stuff De Niro's done. And that, that's the thing about De Niro, and, and I don't want to take anything away from him. He's a great, one of the great American actors of, of the 20th century, and of course now 21st century, but he is very much stereotyped and typecast into a certain type of character that he is excellent, one of the best actors. For sure. And I, there's not much more range out of that. Probably Awakenings. Yeah, I yeah, think that's Awakenings a good one. was good. Well, I think that's why I love this one so much because I do love him in Godfather too, but and and obviously Raging Bull is probably the one that, that most people are going to put number one. But I think it's great. Taxi Driver is great. Mm-hmm. Um, Godfather two, while Casino and uh, Goodfellas, those two are kind of the same. There's still that sort of gangster tie-in, mm-hmm. like with Godfather two, and and that that arc to me is one thing. But this was such a totally different step. Back. I mean, it was more Travis Bickle than anything else that he'd done. Right. Um, only it was Travis Bickle, not quite Travis Bickle with a god complex. Right. Tra- and, and, yep. which, and I loved it. It's one of my favorite. I'd put it. It's like in the top three of his performances. Yeah, I, w- I, I, don't, I don't think I could debate that. You know, I, I, and it's it, and once again, you know, it's it's all about everything that's in the recipe. You know, you take that role and put it in a different storyline with different actors, inferior actors. Maybe it doesn't fly as well. Right. But the movie as itself and the way he fits in and the way he interacts with Nick Nolte and Juliette Lewis, you know, it, it, I think it just kind of all came together to kind of create this iconic character that, that people just still remember. And it's, it is everything from the tattoos to the way he dresses. There's, you know, much like Hannibal Lecter, there's, you, you can't try to recreate that character in no. another movie because you're never going to hit it. Right, And right. you're just going to make yourself foolish, look foolish trying to. 
So when you talk about All in the Recipe, and, and we've talked a lot about how the casting in this movie makes it so perfect. So one of the interesting things about this film is Steven Spielberg actually originally had the rights to this movie and was going to make it. And at the same time, Scorsese had uh, a line on Schindler's List, and they actually swapped out films. Spielberg gave Scorsese uh, this one, Cape Fear, in return for Schindler's List. And without going too deep into that, I can't even imagine anybody else making Schindler's List other than Spielberg. Oh, no. I, and, I mean, that was... Yeah. And, and so it was a good trade for everybody. But when, uh, when, when Spielberg was looking to cast this movie, do you know who he wanted to play Max Cady? Mm-mm. His initial target was Bill Murray. I had no idea. How different would that have been? And Bill Murray's never played that kind of psychotic. Type. No. Yeah. It would have been a different psychotic. It, right. I don't think he would have been the shredded, buff psychotic. It would have been the unhinged. Yeah, because I could see if you were going to go that route, I would more probably more would have led more towards Robin Williams. But if he was if Fisher King was around the same time, he right. probably wasn't available. He was probably filming Fisher King at the time. Because in Fisher King, Robin Williams is pretty crazy. Yes, yes, for sure. <laughs> Nobody does crazy like Robin yeah, Exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, that, that's an interesting tidbit, and it, it's just funny how all that you know the Hollywood stuff and the the, the the way different movies happen and who gets in them and who doesn't. There's all this backstory that's actually sometimes more interesting than the movies themselves. For sure. So we, we haven't talked about Laurie Davis yet. So Laurie Davis, and who was she played by again? Oh, that's uh, um, um, Elena, uh, Elena, Douglas. Elena Douglas. Elena Douglas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Very, very known actress. You know, you've seen her. She was actually in Goodfellas with, with De Niro and Scorsese as well. So they come up with this kind of unnecessary storyline. Right, right. Where he's playing, the Nick Nolte's playing this, like, sexy hot racquetball game with it, her. And this yeah. is pretty early in the movie. Yeah, you know, yeah. It's, still, it's super early. Yeah, still act one, definitely. She's like a law clerk. He's a lawyer, so she's younger. He's older. She's infatuated with him, but he's being honest. He's you know not having an affair with with her or anything. They bring her storyline into this, and then there's this night where supposedly he was supposed to go see her. Nick Nolte, the same character, and he stands her up, so she finds herself at a bar drinking by herself. And guess who just happens to walk in? Max Cady. Max Cady. And he's such a charming guy. <laughs> right. You know, I, I, I rewatched this, I thought the same thing. I'm like, so you're going from the hot-powered lawyer playing some racquetball and giggling around to this guy in yeah. the bar. And, all right, I could go for that. Yeah, why not? <laughs> and they're in, like, some metro area in North Carolina, so you've got to be able to go to a better spot than that. You've got you to think be... they're in Charlotte, aren't they? It's, it's some suburb of Charlotte, I think, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So... Yeah, so, so Max starts sweetening up, getting sweet with her, and she's all excited and gets turned on, and they, they go back to her place, and they're, they're having sex, and Max gets a little violent with her, <laughs> bites off half of her face, beats the crap out of her, I still am trying to think. And, then, and then, then later she calls Sam while he's at home. And then Sam's wife, you know, the uh, Jessica Lane character, Lee, catches Sam on the phone and then starts bringing up how Sam had had an affair back when they were in Atlanta and had to right. move to North Carolina. And I'm just sitting there the whole time going, what does this have to do with anything? It, it has, it has, I don't think it has anything to do with it. And I felt the same way about it. I think the only purpose of it is to give Max Cady somebody else to just mess with and to show how he's willing to get at everything that Sam has. And also, you already know that there's this volatility within the relationship between Lee and Sam. And so having this woman who's not involved with physically with Sam, but is there, and so it's just another piece of friction in between those two, 
and it's just this this additional stressor in that family life. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. I personally, though, I think the whole point of that whole storyline, which takes up about twenty minutes on the movie, is to just show how brutally violent Max Katie can yeah. be. Yeah, because I mean that's. You know, you don't see... You know, some pretty brutal people out there. I mean, we were talking about Hannibal Lecter. He eats brains. Yeah, pretty pretty brutal, <laughs> yeah. pretty gross. But biting the girl's face off, mm-hmm. you just don't see that very often. So I, I still try to figure out where that fits into the bigger picture. And, and the uh, Elena Douglas character, you know, that, that whole scene where he handcuffs her and then she sort of giggles and goes along with it. Yeah. She ad-libbed all of that, too. Oh, really? That was all her. It's opposed to trying to fight and, and struggle. She um, went that route and... and it worked out perfectly. Yeah, well, you know, Katie, you know, he starts off, uh, even before the, the Elena Douglas, Lori Davis scene, you know, he, I mean, he kills her dog. Right, right, right. Yeah, um, so, you know, he's kind of kind of just kind of picking it at, at Sam here, picking at Nick Nolte's character. And, he, and he's always kind of, you know, it happened at the movie theater. Mm-hmm. On multiple occasions, they kind of find a way to interact. You know, so obviously, Max is Snatches his keys interact. out of his car. Yeah, exactly. And at one point... Um, Sam goes up to Max. I think this is a scene that you're talking about when he snags the keys out of his car. And, you know, Sam tries to buy him off. He's like, how much money do you want to go away? Yeah, yeah. And, and this was a really interesting scene because, you know, Sam's all frustrated. He wants Max to go away. And Max just looks up at him and he goes, what, what is compensation for being sodomized by four white guys and then four black guys? And Max starts doing the math in his head. And Max tells Sam, I'm going to make you learn about loss. Yeah. I'll yeah, make yeah. you learn about loss. And, and it's, once again, kind of going back to that, you know, the whole thing with Job, just this constant kind of brain tease that's slowly driving Sam crazy, which in a kind of bigger picture macro sense is probably what's necessary to get to the conclusion of the movie and mm-hmm. Sam actually being able to fight for his life in, in that scene. All right. So next question. Um where does this one rank in terms of Scorsese films? And if you listen to this podcast often, you're going to find that I love to make lists, rank stuff, and we're going to have that question a lot. So where does this one fall in the uh, Scorsese career arc? Well, it's definitely not in the first two or three. Part, to me, Departed is number one. Departed is one of my favorite movies of all time. It's, it's, it's my favorite Scorsese movie. Yeah, I don't right. know if I can say it's the best, but it is my favorite. Right, right. I think that's the best way to say it. But once again, it goes back to that just super cast, great storyline, all those types of right. fun things. And it's the one that people slag on a lot. People don't like that one. Like when you, it, it, there are a lot of people who think he shouldn't have won the Oscar for that, and that was a career lifetime achievement award, and there are other ones that are better. Um, but I, I love that movie oh, so much. Yeah, I can watch that movie over and over again. I, I just think it's... You know, I, I just think it's a brilliant movie. Uh, and then probably number two, I would have to say Gangs of New York. See, I love that one, too. I was going to put that in my list, too, because that one and Departed, I think, are the most rewatchable, if you catch them in the middle. Obviously, Goodfellas is really rewatchable, too, but those, probably those three are the ones that, like, if you, if you, if you catch it, I, I can't turn that off. Well, I, I love Casino, too. I mean, you know, some of the, you know, going back to some of the, like, earlier stuff, and it's, some of it starts to bleed together after a little bit. Right. And a lot of his early stuff, too, you know, I watched 5, 10, 15 years after it was made. So the context of the times was sure, lost for me. Sure, And so, whereas, you know, Gangs of New York, obviously, it's it's a set piece from history, but the the... The actors that are in it, you know, who you know, I think is the greatest actor, at least from my generation, Daniel Day Lewis, and DiCaprio is probably number two. Um, you know, you had a great cast in that one, and just a good story. You know, so I, I, I think, I, but where I like Cape Fear, and I would probably put it in his top five, 
is because it is like Games of New York and like Departed. It is just a little bit off the beaten path of his kind of traditional, yeah. like, you know, Mean Streets type movie. Yes, yes. Um, and even and even to a degree, Goodfellas and Casino, where it's just gangster and you know hard type stuff. Right, right. Um, and, and Grand Departed does you know Jack Nicholson is a gangster, but he's really not the main story. Right, you know, right. He's, he's not the main uh, character in that movie. Yeah. So I, I I think it's up there. But one thing that you know it stood the test of time in a lot of ways. But one way that I don't think it has was the score. It's terrible. Uh, it's just flat out terrible. And I'm kind of. Ba, 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 ba. <laughs> It's awful. And Does that make you feel dramatic? <laughs> Can we do that again? Yeah, it's it's awful. And I'm a, a, a music snob, and I pay attention to scores. It's one of those things that I really think about when I watch a movie. And for everything that's perfect about this movie, that's not... Yeah, well, and, and, not and, and, and it does. It hurts the movie. because Because, you know, the, the thing about a thriller... That, that what makes a good thriller, we talked about this very early on, what makes a good thriller is that, you know, this one, especially this movie, a good thriller, is it jumps right into it. You know, there's no, there's no secrets. Mm-hmm. You know what's going to happen right from the right, get-go. Right, Which is good. Some, you know, sometimes it's good to kind of have a mystery and that type of stuff, but sometimes it's good to just get hit, punched right in the nose yes. by the movie. And they do that here, but then they use the same four notes of dramatic music over and over and over again to set this stage of drama that's completely unnecessary and, to be honest, by halfway through the movie, is annoying. Very much, very much. And, you know, Scorsese is is such a, a rock guy. He knows rock and roll. You mentioned The Stones earlier. He's in it. And his best movies are movies where he just curates a, a musical soundtrack. Like, the soundtrack for Goodfellas is as good as you'll ever get in a movie. Like, it's just nonstop, one after another, great song, placed in a great scene, used perfectly. And so I think if we're going to talk about a Scorsese uh, weak suit, I think it's uh, choosing a score, choosing a composer for your score, because that one, that's a stinker. Well, and, you know, and kind of to your point, it's like, you know, I mean, if you have, you know, Keith Richards doing your score for you, right. that's a lot. That's, yeah, I mean, it's it's different than this kind of orchestrated right, right, uh, right. type of music. And, and that's what it felt like. It felt just very orchestrated, unnecessary, redundant, like it, like I said, it kind of took away, and I know what they were going for. They were trying to establish this kind of reflex in your head that when you heard those heavy horn notes, that it was like, oh, you, you know, something's going to happen. But you know, it's kind of a little bit too Pavlovian for me. Yeah, it's a, it's a little too much of the uh, Friday the Thirteenth, right? We right. know Jason's coming. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, Jason's right around the corner. Yeah. Don't go yeah. out to the barn by yourself. No. And, keep, and keep your top on. Yeah, keep your top on. And, and, and so you think about you know a lot of these different things, and we talked a little bit about. You know the God complex, and uh, and this is kind of interesting. And I, and I don't think it's a rip uh, on on this particular religious sect. Katie admits very early on that he was raised in a Pentecostal family. He you know had this bad thing happen to him. He goes to jail. He's never a good person to begin with. You know he has all the tattoos. He has this God complex, and, and, and the God complex and, and really bugs me because it's. He has a gun complex on one end, but then he's nearly supernatural on the other. So we talked earlier about him getting beat up with pipes and chains and it not bugging him. Then he does something here, here towards the end of the movie um, where he melts a flare on his hand and doesn't feel it. But let's let's kind of talk about how this movie wraps up. So so this was kind of one more thing that just kind of bugged me. So towards, I don't know, about three-quarters of the way movie, we're starting Act 3, that we are introduced to the maid at the Bowden home. Right. We H- Hasn't been in the movie yet. We haven't seen her at all. <laughs> I haven't seen her at all. There's one little scene with her and Danny, yep. with Juliette Lewis, 
And, and then, Which again, you can afford a maid. A thousand bucks shouldn't have been too much to beat up that guy. Like it's just to reinforce your point from earlier. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So by now, the private investigator has decided to kind of set this trap for Katie because he, he thinks Katie's going to come to the house. So uh, so Baker's in there and he's he's setting this trap. And the first night, nothing happens. Second night, this trap he set had wires going all through the house on doors and windows and stuff where. You know, if, if, if a door was open or a window would open, it'd move. Well, it, it starts moving a little bit, and so he goes searching around the house, the private investigator does, and he sees the maid in the kitchen, so the maid has her back to him, so he decides, well, I'm going to sit down and have a sandwich or something like that. Why not? You know, it's, again, I'm a private eye. I, I, I'm, I'm getting paid for this. I, I get some adrenaline rush, and there's good cold cuts in the fridge. <laughs> Let's have a sandwich. <laughs> then, all of a sudden, the maid comes over, now he's sitting down, he goes back to her and pulls out a piano chord, which we didn't talk about how earlier Sam had sat down an hour or so earlier in the movie at the piano and played a note and realized it didn't it's, work. It's missing. And that, uh, that piano wire was missing. Well, the maid chokes the detective to death with the piano wire. And, of course, you look up and the maid's actually didn't hear her dressed up as the maid. Mm-hmm. He killed the maid, too. So, so ridiculousness is about to ensue right, in this right. movie. So first thing... Sam and, and Lee, they're all upstairs, and Danny's down the room and down the hallway in her room. They hear something going on, and they run out of the room. And I think this is one of the stupidest things in writing. When you have a scene like this, and the parents tell the kid, "Go back to your room," right? Because if you're really in that situation, would you really, wouldn't you get your kid with your wife and get them out of the house? Yes. Yes. No, just go in your room. You'll be all right. Lock the door. Because he'll, he'll never... Because if we've learned anything from movies, the bad guy's never going to knock the door down. No. <laughs> no. Never. That never happens. Well, anyway, so then Sam goes downstairs and sees the, the dead detective and the blood everywhere from, you know, because, you know, he, the, the choking, you know, kind of kind of slit his throat. And so there's blood everywhere. And Jessica Lane comes down and Sam, the McNulty character, starts slipping Flipping on the blood. blood yes. <laughs> it falls in the blood. Just stupid. That's it's it's comic, but it's actually probably one of the more real things that might happen. Like you lose your mind and you kind of panic, and then all of a sudden you you go to pivot and you slide in the blood. Like it's it's weird, except it's probably kind of true. Kind of it kind of rings. I, I suppose that could happen. But then Juliet Lewis comes down and sees that the maid's dead, and you would have thought that that maid like had like you know raised her. For the first six yes, minutes of her life. And I'm like, the maid was, maids had like 20 seconds of this movie. <laughs> I, I mean, you know, if, if, if this was supposed to be such a huge ordeal, and, and I understand it would be traumatic to, to see your maid dead, but you would have thought that they were like, you know, best, best yeah, friends or right, something. Yeah, right, right. So, of course, they decide, you know, we got to get out of here. We got to leave right now. Um, you know, it, it, something like uh, he calls his lawyer buddy, he calls Fred Thompson up. And, yeah. Something about accessory to, you know, there's some make it up BS, you know, law, law thing. Where they decide they have to leave town. So this is when they get in the car and they drive to Cape Fear. Mm-hmm. And, of course, they get there and then that's that iconic scene I mentioned earlier with De Niro climbing out from under the car. Which, do you think that's realistic? Do you think that you could drive from Charlotte to the coast underneath the car? And if this wasn't like, you know, this is 1991. It wasn't like, you know, a big Ford Explorer that sits five feet off the ground. Yeah, I mean, I I, I would say no, except Sideshow Bob did it. So Sideshow Bob did it. <laughs> Simpsons. Yeah, it's, but uh, no, I, I no, it's totally ridiculous. It, it's absurd. It's one of those great moments of okay, I'm I gotta suspend disbelief now. Here we go. Yeah, once again, Max Cady, he's like he's like he's a, he's a supernatural person, right? He's it's crazy. So then they get on their little boat and they sail out and whatever, and Katie somehow finds them out there on the boat, and you know. 
chokes Nick Nolte and knocks him out. He's about to, like, rape the wife and daughter. And, and here's where it kind of gets a little too rapey. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like, did you know anybody that likes a rape scene? No. I mean, it's pretty much ruined the legacy of Clockwork Orange. Right. Which is a freaking great movie, but nobody wants to watch it because the rape scenes are yeah. so brutal. Yeah, yeah, But, um, so there's this whole, like, tea scene, and, you know, it's when he melts the flare on his hand, and he locks Juliet Lewis in the in that little closet, little thing in the boat. And then uh, he's going to rape Jessica Lange, but he he's pulls Nick Nolte up so he can watch. Mm-hmm. And, and then he totally pulls like a like a Dr. No from James Bond. Instead of actually just raping her. Right, right. <laughs> oh, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to talk about it for a little <laughs> <Yeah>. while. <laughs> so I'm gonna, let me, let me, I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to make you watch it, Mr. Bond. <laughs> and of course... That's exactly you know, right. That's and, right. You know, if you would have just raped him and killed the guy... You avenge, right? Avenge, avenge, and he has a houseboat. His houseboat, exactly. Right? Like he can have barbecues and shit. <laughs> exactly. So, anyway, he's doing all that, and Juliet Lewis, you know, pops out. You know, he gets her back out, and she, you know, that snuck like a bottle of lighter fluid. And it's like, you know, he's so like confident. Max Katie's so yes. confident that he's about to rape and murder this family. That you know, he, he's doing his doctor no talking about it, telling him how it's all going to go down. And, you know, all that kind of stuff. And he lights up his big fat cigar because, you know, why not? Right. You know, you, you, you don't need to save that for later. I'm going to do it right now. And as soon as... Because Red Auerbach usually lit his in the third quarter. Exactly. Exactly. So, so as soon as he does that, Juliet Lewis, and they're like, you know, freaking crazy Juliet Lewis face, squirts him <laughs> with the lighter fluid and catches him on fire. But does that kill him? No way. How would <laughs> fire get killed by Skinny? <laughs> no. <laughs> So then they, like, fight, and they roll around, and then you got this, like, you know, Nick Nolte being a tough guy scene, which I don't think Nolte's had some tough guys. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. He's, yeah, I think he's known kind of as a tough guy, more so than a dramatic actor. That's yeah. kind of his bag, especially with the with the, with the gravel-throat voice, and, yeah. yeah, he's kind of a rough-and-tumble guy. Yeah, so they, he's a pretty big man, and so they go, he's probably a lot bigger than De Niro, he's like 5'6", <laughs> yeah. or something, I don't, know, I don't know what he is, but he's not a tall man. So then they, like, fight, and... Um, and then uh, Juliette Lewis and Jessica Lange jump off the boat into this, you know, torrent storm. You know, it's ripping right, the right. boat apart. You know, torrent storm. They're all fighting, and the boat starts crashing and starts falling apart. And then finally, Nick Nolte handcuffs Max Cady, you know, the De Niro character's leg, to some bar on the boat, smashes into a rock, and it's all falling apart. And then they start throwing rocks at each other. Right. It's like, it's like total, like, you know, first century biblical <laughs> study type yes. stuff going hey. on. <laughs> it's like the boat to Palestine. <laughs> yeah. And then the rocks keep getting bigger. They start off with, right, like, smaller right, rocks, right. and the next thing you know, they're, like, lifting these, like, you know, 50-pound. It's like, is a 50-pound rock going to make much more of a difference than a 20-pound rock? In, in a massive uh, torrential downpour on a sinking houseboat, not so much. Not so much. Well, anyway, they're smacking these rocks down, and you know, and, and I, I really pretty much one blow from any of those rocks would have mm-hmm. like knocked anybody out. Yeah, for sure. So, so now not only is Katie supernatural, now Sam's supernatural mm-hmm. too. So it's kind of getting a little goofy here. Well, you know, finally, I think Sam gets the best of Katie, and the part of the boat that he's stuck to kind of comes off the rock a little bit and goes out to the middle of, of the river, wherever they're at. And he starts sinking, this very slow, dramatic sinking. And we know Max is going to die now. Right. And I think it's pretty evident that Max is going to die. And, but as he slowly starts going down, he starts speaking in tongues. So well, he's this God complex. He's, he's God. He's speaking in tongues, but he's drowning. And you, you can kind of get this. You almost get a sense of pity for him a little bit. And like you always do with those kind of crazy characters. Right. Where it's like, oh, I mean, I feel bad for the guy. He was kind of crazy. Right. But then you're like, it oh, wasn't no. really his fault. 
Nobody raped and murdered teenagers. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so right, it's right. like, yeah, right, I'm not going to lose any sleep over them. And then, of course, you know, the, the family all reunite on the muddy shores. And they kind of go to this kind of final scene where it's Juliette Lewis, Danny, doing a narration. And she says, we never talked about that again. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a real problem for me. That's a real <laughs> problem for me. Because how many traumatic events have you had in your life? Like, nothing like this, but everything that's big, you talk about it again. Remember last year that, what we were doing this time? Oh, yeah, we were on that houseboat fighting for our lives, and I was lighting that bad guy up with some lighter fluid and some cigar. Yeah, and you know, if she was 16 at the time in this movie, and and, and she never talked about this event for the rest of her life, because remember, she had a little crush on him in the theater, yes, too. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then he tried to rape her, then he got murdered, blah, blah, blah. If she never talked about this with anybody, I'm thinking that she's not having much of a normal adulthood. No, no. And, and, and if she is talking about it with somebody, think about... Sam's concern about how much the therapy's costing him. A thousand bucks to beat somebody up is a problem. So do you think she had girlfriends in college that were like, you know, um, my dad, he bought me like a used car for my 16th birthday and it sucked. She's like, oh, my dad saved me from being raped and murdered from some crazy <laughs> yeah. guy. Yeah, it's like, you know, what kind of stories right. does she tell the sorority house? Right. <laughs> That's one up Danielle over there. You don't want to room with her. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, yeah. Danielle, she's going to tell you that story about the boat sinking and her dad saving her and the rapist. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> she was probably a uh, chore to be with in college. <laughs> yeah, so, anyway, so, so, so if, 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 you, if you take it all in, though, what is the recommendation for our listeners? Would you recommend they watch this movie again? Absolutely. This movie is still good. This is, even though there's some ridiculousness in there, it's still good. It's not as good as some of the other movies that we talked about. It's not the best De Niro, not the best Scorsese, but it's still really good. And if you really like a movie for entertainment value and you like a little bit of a thriller, this will hit home. It, it, It holds up really well. Yeah, I would I would totally agree, and and, uh, and I and I think you know whether it was uh, you know the wardrobe or the cinematography, even the lame score, you know it's not. There's nothing other than a scene where they're like you know listening to like Guns and Roses and stuff and, and Megadeth. There's there's really not much in this movie that like dates it to early 1990s, which essentially is the late 80s. Right, not at all. And even with the clothing and and the wardrobe and I mean the style, you can tell, but it's not blatant. Like, if you go back and watch a movie like um, uh, California, we referenced that one earlier, the style in that is just, like, over-the-top, early 90s stuff. And this is, none of it is over-the-top. It's all very Southeast America, and and it it, it resonates. It doesn't look like, oh, my gosh, this movie is from some yesteryear time. Yeah, no, I would agree. I, I, I would, I would. Re- if you haven't seen this one in a while, I would recommend giving it, giving, giving yeah, it two hours, two hours, hours ten, of your life, two hours, ten minutes, something like that. It's worth that. It's, um, and you know, and, and hopefully, you know, we've given you a few tidbits that might make it a little bit more enjoyable for you. But yeah, I, I, I would probably give it a B plus. Yeah, I, I, that's I, I would. I probably wouldn't give it an A, but I think I would give it a solid B plus. Um, I don't know when would you want to watch it again. That's a good question because I'm I'm good for a little while. I don't need to go back and revisit it again for a few years. I like I might put it in, in the box for five years or so. Yeah, I think I got the, I got about two more times for this one in my whole life. Yeah, yeah, and I think I'm good. Yeah. I, I just think there's a lot. I think it's good. I think it's worth the time. But there's a lot of really good stuff out there. Absolutely, you know, and, we'll, and we'll help you guys, you know, remember those and identify them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and to that end, uh, check us out on Facebook. We've got a page uh, for Is That Movie Still Good? 
Also, Twitter, we're there. Tweet at us. Tell us what movies you think are still good that you would like us to talk about because we're looking for answers uh, or suggestions. We've got um, the next couple planned out. We're going to get to work on those. But from there, it's kind of a a clean slate that we're going to be digging into. So we we hope that we uh, have a lot of listeners. We hope you guys enjoy this, and we hope you guys enjoy what we have coming up. Yeah. All right. So for Nate Nate Grishon, I'm Jim Nolan, and this has been... Is That Movie Still Good? Copyright 2018. All rights reserved.